Welcome to the Daily Bite. I'm your host, Pastor Steve Andrews. Today brings us to Psalm 99. Yahweh reigns, let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim, let the earth quake. Yahweh is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt Yahweh our God, worship at his footstool, holy is he. Moses and Aaron were among his priests. Samuel also was among those who called upon his name. They called to Yahweh, and he answered them. In the pillar of the cloud he spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. O Yahweh our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. Exalt Yahweh our God and worship at his holy mountain. For Yahweh our God is holy. This is the word of the Lord. Those first three words, which really in Hebrew would just be two, Yahweh reigns, the divine name of God. Double-checking myself there. Yeah, Yahweh Yahweh Malak, Yahweh, he reigns. Those two words to open up this psalm are both a tremendous word of comfort and also a word of great terror. I think we see both of those themes in the psalm, so I'm not going to unpack them necessarily right away. Let's just work our way through the text. Now, you could talk about, as a family, what does it mean that Yahweh reigns? And for little kids that are able to spell, make sure they recognize the difference in the word rain from the precipitation that falls from the sky. This is not that, although part of Yahweh reigning would be that he provides rain on his earth. He sends the rain both on the just and the unjust, on good and evil. Yahweh reigns, that he is king For us, as we think of the New Testament, that brings us certainly to the ascension of Jesus Christ into heaven 40 days after his resurrection, that he is seated at the right hand of the Father, and that he reigns. He is king. Now this gets at the idea of what a king should do. A good king, of which there is only one, and you can go ahead and capitalize that letter K in king, Jesus, a good king, a good king provides for his people, cares for his people, protects his people. A good king does not look to be served by his people. He doesn't ask what the people can do for him, but rather he looks to serve them. (laughs) Notice how opposite that was to one of American government's famous speeches, that of Uh, John F. Kennedy's inauguration address in 1961 where he said, Ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. 
He was our king. It was his role to care for us. The Lord warned us of kings. 1 Samuel chapter 8, give it a read. Uh, Basically, lots of slavery, lots of abuse of power. And there are very few Americans at this point who don't look to their government as doing those kinds of things to them now. Just took a while to, to recognize the patterns. A good king serves his people. This is the conversation that Jesus has with his disciples. In Matthew chapter 20, where after the mother of the sons of Zebedee, James and John, sons of thunder, Boanerges, she came up and asked if they could sit at Jesus' right and his left in his kingdom, assuming that's an earthly kingdom with a throne in Jerusalem in the second and third positions of power in the kingdom. And Jesus ultimately ends up pulling all the disciples aside because he recognizes the fight that they're having over authority. And he says, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, whoever would be first among you must be your slave, even as the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's what your king did for you. He gave his life. For no greater love has one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Jesus is a true king, a good king, the only king, the king above all kings. All right, so let the peoples tremble. Let the earth quake. Maybe another family conversation there if you'd like. Do people fear God today? As Lutherans, we memorize our small catechism. We remember the the words that Luther uses to describe the first commandment. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. Fear. Fear has a genuine place in the Christian's relationship with God. On the one hand, it is a sin deterrent to recognize that the Lord is all-powerful and I am not. I am not free to simply do whatever I want to do. Fear, as the law does, fear helps to curb that sin. It's also a simple recognition of what is true. I am a sinner. I deserve death. I deserve hell. God is the Lord. He is holy. He has every right. And in a way, might even talk about responsibility to damn me. But, that's where the mercy comes in. As Christians, we know that it's a two-sided thing. We know that at the same time, Christ has also come. Jesus has died on the cross. Our sins have been forgiven. And so when judgment day comes, when the last day comes, we get to stand before this king and hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And like the the men that Jesus talks to and uses as an illustration in Matthew 25, we'll probably look around and say, me? That's not quite what they say in the Matthew 25, but 
they respond to Jesus saying, when did we do these things? It's not prideful. Our faith is not boastful. Not in ourselves, at least. It's boastful in Jesus. We are proud in Christ of what he has done and what he has done for us. Anyway, so the fear is there. It should be. As a family conversation of whether or not people fear God today, though, some do. But part of the trouble is is that the fear of God is largely absent in the world and especially in our own culture. They've been taught that they're an accident. That's what evolution teaches. Nothing here is intentional. Nothing here is purposeful. You're an accident. You're here by chance. You'll live a while and then you're gone. Do whatever you want. That's the mindset. That is the mentality that has raised the last several generations of people in this country. And it is why we are now reaping what we've sown. A life without purpose leads only to the desires of the sinner's heart. And as we learn in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3, those are nothing but evil continuously. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. I like to say cherubim. I know in English most people say cherubim, uh, im ending instead of im. But in Hebrew it is an im sound, so I just like to bring that forward. It is the Hebrew plural. Not really plural, more of a dual ending representing two, although it can be more than two. Angels. We don't know the distinctions between different kinds of angels. There do seem to be. But angels. This seems to be a reference to God's house. That as you you think of the way that the temple is built, and even the tabernacle before it with the Ark of the Covenant, that the Ark of the Covenant had on each side of it a cherub. So two cherubim. And the language used in Exodus to describe it is vague enough that it is hard to tell if these are tiny cherubs that are on the side of his throne like armrests. You could picture that, right? I mean, just look at if I'm sitting in a, a computer desk chair right now, and it's got, you know, these two little armrests on it, and they're shaped like T's, right? They come up from the chair, and then they have the, the part that's flat that you put your arm on. You could do that with the, the design of an angel, right? It's standing there with its wings spread out. But it's also, again, vague enough that it could be a larger cherubim that their wings cast shade over this throne. It's hard to say. When you get to the temple, though, and the Ark of the Covenant would be brought into the most holy place of the temple, there are a couple of very large cherubim in that room whose wings stretch from wall to wall as they touch each other in the middle. The Lord sits enthroned upon the cherubim. This seems to be, well, it's clearly a reference to his throne, but a reference to the temple, which is the next line. Yahweh is great in Zion, exalted over all the peoples. Great in Zion. We would say he's not just great in Zion, he's great everywhere. But that would seem to make it a reference to the relationship between God and the peoples. That the people in Zion, the people in Jerusalem, 
they actually look to Yahweh as their God. And they value him as being great. They value his throne. And this is true at various points in Israel's history. It's a roller coaster ride. I mean, they're all over the place, sometimes very faithful, sometimes very unfaithful, and sometimes in between. He is exalted over all the peoples. Exalt, lifted up. He is high above us. That does not prevent a sinful man from seeking to enthrone himself. Many people today believe that God does not even exist. And so they do the opposite and they try to exalt themselves over the Lord. And in the world's eyes, they're getting away with it. But they won't on the last day. So we pray for their repentance before it is too late. Before they come before the throne of God and they recognize their their wickedness of their ways. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Part of being in Jerusalem is God's promise of what he would do. Again, the king that cares for his people. That he would speak his word from his throne. He would speak his word to his people. That they would know him. That he would be present with them. That he would defend them. As God is described in the Psalms, often as a fortress, a refuge, a strength. So the people praise him. Also a very common notation of the Psalms. Here, though, they praise his great and awesome name. And this one's a struggle in the church today, and it has been for a long time. What is the great and awesome name of God? Did you see it in this Psalm? It's here seven times. Seven times, and yet it is never said. It's never spoken. God gave us his name at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. He made known to Moses who he was. Moses asked, essentially he asked if the people want to know who sent me, who should I tell them sent me to them? And God's response famously is, I am who I am. In Hebrew, I am is ehweh. It's off of the verb, the first person singular of the verb hayah. Not the karate term, but that's roughly how you'd pronounce that in English as far as I'm aware. Hayah means to be. So the first person of to be, if you're going to put I, we wouldn't in English say I be, we'd say I am. So I am ehwe asher hu ehwe, I am. And then God speaks just a couple of moments later and he says to Moses this is who you shall tell the people sent you to them Yahweh from the same Hebrew verb Hayah to be except for now it's third person singular he is Yahweh The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. And then God says that that is the name by which he is to be remembered from generation to generation forever. Yahweh. And yet we've forgotten it. The Jews became so concerned about breaking the second commandment that you shall not take the name of the Lord in vain that they stopped speaking it. 
wherever they would see the divine name Yahweh in the text. They left it in the text, but they would read the Hebrew word for Lord. So they would actually speak out loud and they would say Adonai instead of saying Yahweh. But God's name is a confession of faith. He says, I am. We respond, he is. It's a confession. And not only have we lost the verbal today, in English we've lost the written too. I mean, it's still there, kind of. Right? Anywhere you see the word Lord in all capital letters or the word God in all capital letters in your, in your English Old Testament, it is the divine name, Yahweh. It shows up almost, I think it's a couple short, almost 7,000 times in the Old Testament. We are told to praise it in this psalm and it shows up in this psalm seven times in nine verses. God gave us his name to use it, and that is why I would suggest that it is actually a second commandment violation to forget it. It is taking it in vain. God gave it to us and said, this is my name, this is important. And we said, this is his name, we're never going to use it. That's treating it in vain. That's treating it as worthless to put in a box and put it on a shelf and forget about it. Just like if you told somebody you met what your name was and then for the next 20 years of your life, they never called you by name. You would not think that they had honored your name. Now, the, the, the great thing about this name of the Lord too, though, is by the time you get to the New Testament, as soon as you get Matthew chapter 1, the angel tells the Holy Family, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As soon as we get that divine name of Jesus, which means he saves, we never see the name Yahweh again. It disappears from the pages of Scripture in the New Testament because this is the new name that we are to use. There is no other name under heaven by which we are to be saved. So as you think of verse 3 today in this hymn, in this psalm, let them praise your great and awesome name, Jesus. Don't forget the name Jesus, which again is a confession of our faith. He saves. Every time we say it, he saves. He saves. Who does he save? He saves me. He saves us. Holy is he. And in this case, that word holy means perfect. It can mean set apart. God is perfect in ways that we never have been, as we've been sinful from the moment we were conceived. But he is holy. Well, all right, we're almost done with the show, and we've only covered the first three of the nine verses, so let's kind of work our way through the rest here. This king loves justice, so he cares, again, for his people, and he does so rightly, not based on bribes, but on the law of God, the perfect and holy law of God. He has established equity. That's an English word that is a little bit rough to understand. So let me take you into the Hebrew here, because the word, honestly, is not there in Hebrew. In Hebrew, it says, you have established mesharim, is the Hebrew word. 
And the lexicon that I have, actually have two different lexicons open in front of me. One suggests we translate it uprightness or straightness. The other suggests various words, level way, order, regulation, justly, with justice, uprightness, straightness, truth, or an agreement. So the second one has lots more options there. Notice nowhere in there is the English word equity, a level way, straightness, uprightness. God has established the level way, and to translate it that way would have us considering perhaps the task of John the Baptist to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight the path. The Lord has established the way that is good. He has executed justice and righteousness in Jacob, both on behalf of his people as against their enemies, but also within, as the Lord judges sin and has protected his people from a little leaven leavening the whole lump. Exalt Yahweh our God, worship at his footstool, so we lift up the Lord. We do so by praising his name. We do that together. We do that before our neighbor. We do that in the world. We worship at his holy footstool. Now that could be a reference to two different things. It could simply be the reference to the idea that we worship at his feet as a servant before their Lord. Or it could be a reference to the idea of the defeat of enemies. As the ancient world, often you would have a footstool as a king and you would carve the names of your, your enemies that you had conquered into that footstool. You've placed them under your feet. That's a reference you see in Scripture. It's kind of the picture of that. And so we come to worship at his footstool, recognizing that he has defeated our enemies for us. And that then could be a family conversation. What enemies has God defeated for you? Sin, death, and the devil. Those names carved into that footstool, and we worship the Lord because of it. Moses and Aaron among his priests, so those who interceded between God and man and spoke his word to his people. Samuel, among those who called upon his name, here a reference to the prophets. They called to Yahweh and he answered. Indeed, God spoke to his people. He worked through his people of old. In the pillar of cloud he spoke to them. So, reference to the Exodus, those 40 years in the wilderness. Not normally how we think of the pillar of cloud, is it? but it is an appearance of God himself as he defended his people, as he guided his people, and also spoke to them. They kept his testimonies and the statute that he gave them. Kind of, right? And some, sometimes they kept his word. They trusted in him. Not all of them did, and they did not all get to see the promised land. Yahweh our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, but an avenger of their wrongdoings. So both and. God forgave them, God brought them into the promised land, but he also punished sin. They did not all get to see it. How would we talk about this today? God's forgiveness, but also his avenging of sin. So we would talk about the cross of Christ and the forgiveness of our sins. We would talk about also the, the judgment day, the last day, and that evil will not ultimately go unpunished. So we lift up the Lord. We worship at his holy mountain, which was a reference to Jerusalem. But in John 4, Jesus told that Samaritan woman at the well that the day was coming when they would worship the Father, not on that mountain or in Jerusalem, 
but essentially that we would worship the Lord everywhere. Yahweh our God is holy. He is perfect. He is king. And he is a good king. Amen.